evening in 1st Peter chapter 1, 1st Peter 1. This evening we'll be looking at the church suffering. The church suffering. First Peter 1, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 3 to 9. I'm actually going to read through verse 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering, the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we do rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the good news that though we are sinners, and though our sin separates us from you, a holy God, yet in abundant mercy and grace, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us to take our death and to give us life. Father, this evening we recognize, even in the songs that we have just sung in Christ alone, before the throne of God above, even in these songs we are recognizing the fact that it is not our works or any merit of ourselves that gives us a right to come before you or to call you Father. It's in Christ alone. And this evening as we look at this passage, may we... Rejoice in the hope that is ours, regardless of circumstances. And may you be glorified in all that we say and do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know how many of you are big basketball fans, specifically NBA. I love the NBA. I've, I've followed it for many years. In the basketball world, most people would say that Michael Jordan is the GOAT. And for those of you who do not follow sports, GOAT stands for greatest of all time. 
When you hear someone say, this is the GOAT, they're saying he is the greatest of all time. Michael Jordan has made a good case to be called the GOAT. During his career of 15 years, Jordan was a five-time MVP, six-time finals MVP, 14-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA, and six-time champion. What made Michael Jordan so great? You see, Jordan was not the tallest. He was definitely not the best shooter. He was not the highest jumper. He was not the most athletic. What made Jordan the greatest is that Jordan was the greatest winner. He knew what it took to win and he was willing to do it. There's a saying that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Michael Jordan was tough. The greater the challenge, the greater that Jordan played. And perhaps one of the things that Michael Jordan is most famous for is the flu game. The flu game. On June 5th of 1997, it was Game 5 of the NBA Finals against the Utah Jazz. It was in Utah. And Jordan came into the game with severe flu-like symptoms. Yet despite his sickness and despite the hostility of the crowd, despite everything that was stacked against him, he went on to score 38 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, three steals and one block, including a three-pointer with less than a minute left that gave the Bulls the lead and won the game. No matter how great the circumstances surrounding him, Michael Jordan never gave up. And the greater the pressure, the brighter that he shone. As we come to our passage this evening, We see that the greater the pressure, the brighter the church should shine. We'll see this evening in this passage that suffering should not push the church down, but suffering should build up, should grow, is the cause of suffering. We've been working our way through this series on the church. We started a while ago in Matthew 16, verse 18, the church promised. Jesus Christ first introduces the church and he makes this claim, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Next two, we see the church established at the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. In Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 22, we see the church's sure foundation. Christ alone, the chief cornerstone to which everything else in the church is related. In Ephesians 2, 11, 22, we also see the church's makeup. The church is for the redeemed. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, we see the church's purpose to gather, to grow, and to go. What is it that we as a church are to do? What is our purpose? In 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 uh, 1 to 13, we see how is the church to organize, to do this thing, to accomplish this purpose. We see that in the church offices of pastor and deacon. In Matthew 28 and 1 Corinthians 11, we see why do we do this? And we're reminded of that in the church ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. 
Last week we saw in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, what does it look like when the church does this, fulfills its purpose, and when it does it well, the church thriving. is a church that is unified, it recognizes that it has been equipped, and a church that is growing. This evening we come to another question. What if we encounter hardship? What if we encounter hardship? 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9 the church suffering. You see, the church exists in enemy territory. The reality is that we will face suffering, whether in the form of persecution or simply in the reality of living in a fallen world. Jesus promised it. The apostles faced it and wrote of it. They all experienced it, and we should expect it. Suffering must not catch us by surprise. And if we are not prepared to thrive in suffering, then we are not truly prepared to follow Jesus. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ must thrive in the midst of suffering. The church must thrive in the midst of suffering. The church will thrive in the midst of suffering. And the church will thrive not because of what she is, but because of whose she is. As we work our way through this passage this evening, we'll see our hope in suffering, our joy in suffering, and our future despite suffering. First thing that we see is our hope in verses 3 to 5. Our hope. See, the book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Peter to believers in Galatia, modern-day Turkey. It's most likely written around the burning of the city of Rome in A.D. 64. Pressure against believers was rising. Nero blamed the Christians, which set off persecution against them. And the believers in this northern outpost of the Roman Empire were under intense persecution. And so here in 1 Peter, Peter writes to encourage them to remain faithful in the midst of this persecution. One of the ways that Peter accomplishes this is with the future focus of his letter. He's constantly drawing their attention to the future, to what God is doing, what he will do. Peter draws the thoughts of his readers away from their present circumstances to the promised future glory. And Peter begins here in, verse, in verses 1 to 2 by calling them elect exiles. He reminds them of their true identity in Christ. They are gods. He has chosen you. And you are exiles. This world is not your home. And this life is not the end. In verses 3 to 5, then Peter expounds upon this precious salvation that God has given them by his grace. In fact, Peter says here in this section, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Peter makes a statement here, and it follows this pattern. God deserves praise because it is God who has given us this gift. It is God who deserves praise because it is God who has given us this gift. God has given, it, given us this gift according to his abundant mercy. Notice that it is not by merit. It's not something that we deserve. Rather, it's an abundant mercy that God has reached out to us in Christ. We just saw in verses 1 to 2 how Peter's already established that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God did not have to show us mercy. But God has chosen because of his abundant mercy to reach out to us. God deserves praise because, of, because it is God who's given us this gift. God has given it to us according to his abundant mercy. The substance of this gift is new life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has what? Has begotten us again. Has caused us to be born again. In his abundant mercy, God has given us this new life. It's the same language that Jesus uses in John 3 when talking with Nicodemus. You must be born again. It's to be made new. The result of this new life, this gift of God, is a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. To what? To a living hope. A living hope is a hope that does not die. It's a hope that knows no limit or no end. And our hope knows no limit because God's mercy knows no limit. And the means and guarantee of this new life and living hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We serve a living Savior, and therefore we have a living hope. After taking them through this, Peter goes on to assure these believers that their inheritance in Christ, this living hope, verse 4, to an inheritance, a living hope, incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away, reserved for you, reserved in heaven for you. This living hope is incorruptible, it is permanent, it is undefiled, it is pure, and it does not fade away, it is priceless, it does not lose value. How can this be? How can this hope, this new life that has been given to me in Christ by God, how can it be permanent, pure, and priceless? Because, this verse 5 goes on to say, because you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Because not only has God called us, but God keeps us. We have been saved by works, and we are, we have not been saved by works, and we are not kept by works. This new life and this living hope cannot be lost because it is the power of God that has saved us, and it is the power of God that will keep us. 
But here's the question. If in the introduction as I lay down what, what these believers are facing, if that is true, if they are facing persecution, if their lives truly are on the line, if they are facing such terrible suffering, why does Peter start here by reminding them of the gospel that they already know and believe? Don't they need something more tangible? Don't they need something more practical? But what can be more practical than the gospel? It's because of the gospel that they find themselves in this situation, and it is because of the gospel that they will persevere through this situation. Peter must start here. He must start with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because without the gospel, there is no hope. Their hope is grounded in the gospel. And therefore, the hope that they have in the midst of this suffering is sure. See, the gospel is good news in times of plenty, and it is good news in times of need. The gospel is good news in times of comfort, and the gospel is good news in times of suffering. The gospel is good news in both pastures and besides still waters and in the valleys. The gospel is good news not just because God has chosen you and saved you, but because it is God who is sustaining you, and it is God who will keep you, and it is God who will complete in you what he has begun. That is the hope that these believers in the midst of suffering need to be reminded of. That is the hope that we need to be reminded of. Because these verses are just as true and practical for us today as they were in A.D. 64. Life may have changed. Empires may have come and gone. Culture has advanced and technology has progressed. But our hope remains unchanged because our God remains unchanged. Our hope is just as sure in 2020 as their hope in A.D. 64. It is God who has chosen us. It is God who has saved us. It is God who will sustain us. And it is God who will complete in us, who will complete in us what he has begun in us. We must remember that because we have that same hope. Our circumstances are drastically different than their circumstances in AD 64, but our God is exactly the same. And the circumstances of this mortal life do not threaten the hope of our eternal inheritance in Christ. And so that's where Peter starts. Peter starts by reminding these, these believers who are facing inter, in, intense persecution, he starts by reminding them of the hope that they have in Christ. He starts by reminding them most basically of the gospel. But secondly, he reminds them of their cause for rejoicing. In verse 6, he even calls them to rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. These believers find themselves in the midst of intense suffering, and yet, as Peter reminds them here in verse 6, they find themselves still, even in the midst of such persecution, you still have more reason to rejoice than to fear. The rejoicing is unhindered in the face of suffering. They rejoice because of their hope in Christ. 
regardless of their circumstances. This rejoicing is not a denial of reality. It's not just closing your eyes and clenching your fists and, and I am rejoicing. They're facing real pain and real loss. Some of them may have or will lose their worldly possessions. Some may even lose their lives. But they will never lose their inheritance in Christ. This joy is the overflow of a heart with an eternal perspective. By faith, they see beyond the immediate and they see to the ultimate. And therefore, they can rejoice. The church is at war. And praise the Lord that we have a promise. And we know that we will succeed and death will not prevail because the Lord of life is on our side. Life as a believer is not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be painless. It will not be painless. And yet, not only should the church not fear suffering for Christ, but we should rejoice in it. Not because we are masochists, but because we know that it does not threaten our hope and because we must realize that it is for our good. Now, this may be where I lose some of you. See, you may say, I, I understand that suffering does not threaten my hope. I understand that. I understand that as a believer, I should have an eternal perspective. I get that. But what I don't understand is how can suffering be for my good? And this is exactly where Peter goes in verse 7. In this, verse 6, this hope, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. You rejoice even though you're in trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only does this suffering not threaten your hope, but this suffering is working God's purposes in you. True faith is not threatened by trial. True faith grows in the midst of trial. Gold, as precious as it is, is burned in fire to burn away all the impurities, leaving only what is true and valuable. And your faith is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more precious. As the fire is not meant to destroy the gold, but to purify and prepare it, so suffering for the believer is not meant to break your faith, but to strengthen your faith. God never wastes trials. He never wastes suffering. He is always doing something. If you find yourself in the midst of suffering, rejoice. 
Because your God is at work in you and around you. And it is good. This is the same argument that Paul makes in Romans 8. Romans 8 is probably a chapter that you're much more familiar with than 1 Peter chapter 1. We love that verse in Romans 8, 28, don't we? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. We love that verse. We cling to that verse. We continually return to that verse. But Romans 8.28 cannot properly be understood outside of the context of Romans 8.18, which says this first, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is my good? It is that glory that God is preparing me for. It is God's purposes in me. My good is not what I perceive to be good. It is what God perceives to be good for me. It is what God purposes to be good for me. Paul's point in Romans 8 and Peter's point here in 1 Peter 1 is simply this. God knows what he is doing. And God is accomplishing his purposes in me. And if I need to suffer life, loss in this life for the glory of God, it is for my good. It is for my good. Because what is promised to me is infinitely greater than anything that can be taken from me in this life. But what does this rejoicing look like? What does it look like to rejoice? In the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. We just saw this morning in John 11 that rejoicing is not the denial of difficulty. It's not fighting back the tears. Jesus himself wept. Rejoicing in the midst of trial and suffering is less about your disposition and more about your mindset. See, I can weep at sin and death and pain and still rejoice in the goodness of my God. I can mourn in loss and cry out to God in pain and still rejoice in faith. It is possible, as 1 Thessalonians tells us, to mourn with hope. And that is what rejoicing looks like. Rejoicing in the midst of of trial, rejoicing in the midst of suffering, looks like not losing hope. It looks like seeing the end goal, keeping my mind on what God is doing, and submitting to Him. We've seen our hope that is sure, our rejoicing. That is necessary. And now we see our future. Verses uh, 7b to 9. We'll start in the beginning of verse 7. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory 
receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Paul's argument to this point has followed this line of thought. You have a sure hope in Christ. Therefore rejoice because of what God is doing. And as he comes to these verses, it's therefore rejoice because of what God has promised. Rejoice in the moment, recognizing that God is doing something. Rejoice in the future, looking specifically to what God has promised. Peter here in these verses gives us two reasons that believers must endure and must rejoice. The first thing we see is that believers in the midst of suffering must endure because your endurance will result in the praise, honor, and glory of Christ at his return. We see that in verse 7. Christ is coming again. And how encouraging and exciting that is for us who are in Christ. See, Peter, as he writes this, he had the privilege to see Christ. His readers hadn't. We haven't. We long for that day. And we will see him. He is coming. And faithful endurance in the midst of trial ensures praise, honor, and glory to Christ when we do see him. We will endure for the sake of Christ. But second, believers in the midst of suffering must endure because your endurance will result in your salvation. Now hear me. Verse 9 says this, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you're paying attention, that might cause your ears to perk up. What do you mean the end of my faith? Am I not saved now? You are. You are saved in Christ. You are secure in Christ. And yet, you are growing in Him. And yet, your sanctification is not completed in glorification. There is both a present aspect to the finished work of Christ and a future aspect. There's a presently complete aspect to salvation and a future promised completion of salvation. Our hope is sure, our salvation is accomplished, it is done. And yet it is to be finished in glory when our sanctification is completed and we stand before Christ glorified. And so we rejoice because of what God has done in us and we rejoice because of what God will complete in us. We rejoice in the midst of suffering because God has saved us. Rejoice in the midst of suffering because God is sanctifying us. And we rejoice in the midst of suffering because God will glorify us. We can submit to God's plan and rejoice even when it hurts. Because we trust God. And we trust him not just for our eternal salvation, but for our present sanctification. Therefore, we will endure. What does the church suffering look like? The church suffering must be the church rejoicing. Suffering does not hinder the church, but suffering strengthens and grows the church because suffering strengthens and grows the members. And because suffering never happens 
to the church outside of the plans and purposes of God. In the midst of suffering, the church will continue to gather. In the midst of suffering, the church must continue to grow. And in the midst of suffering, the church must continue to go to the world with the good news of the gospel. Circumstances do not limit the power of the gospel, and circumstances do not limit or negate the purposes and effectiveness of the church. The church must be the church, regardless of circumstances. So you ask me, what does the church look like in the midst of suffering? The church must look the exact same as it does when it's not suffering. You see, last week we looked at the church thriving. The church thriving does not mean the church not suffering. The church thriving is when the church is accomplishing what God has called the church to accomplish. And the church can accomplish that regardless of circumstances. The church can thrive in times of plenty. The church can thrive when life is is comfortable and easy. And the church can thrive in the midst of suffering. In fact, it must. Because we have a mission. Because we are called to gather, to grow, to go, to minister to one another. And it starts with each and every one of us. A lot of times when you go through a series of the church, I think you're, you're tempted, at least I am, to think of this, this building. When we gather together, this is what we must be doing. The reality is this is what each and every one of us must be doing in our day in and day out lives. We as a church cannot respond rightly to suffering if we as believers are not responding rightly to suffering. It starts with you. It starts with me. The reality is that it might be sooner rather than later that we are facing some difficult decisions. It might be sooner rather than later that we find ourselves in the midst of trial. Are we ready? Are we ready? If we as a church are not thriving now with the freedom that God has given us, with the lack of persecution, how in the world do we expect to thrive when suffering comes? We must start now, each and every one of us. We must be prepared to thrive, to respond rightly to suffering.